Hey everyone, welcome back to Politico's EU Confidential. I'm Ryan Heath, your host, and you're listening to the EU's number one news and politics podcast. This podcast is sponsored by AB InBev. As the leading global brewer, AB InBev believes that offering consumers a wider choice of products with different alcohol strengths is key to helping them make smart drinking decisions. That's why AB InBev works hard to extend the availability of no and lower alcohol beer. Learn more about our new Brussels bubbles on www.ab-imbev.eu. Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential. Don't forget, if you click subscribe on whatever podcast platform you found this episode, the next one will arrive automatically on your phone or computer. You'll never have to search for it again. It's been an interesting week in European politics, the week of not quite declarations. Catalonia couldn't quite declare independence, and Theresa May couldn't quite commit to Brexit. She said that she wasn't sure if she'd vote for it if she had the chance again today. She also couldn't quite guarantee EU citizens' rights if there's no Brexit deal by March 2019. Ouch. We also have a new four-way Dutch government that's arrived after 208 days of negotiating waffle, but there are still some radical ideas there, including a flat tax. Austria heads to the polls this weekend, where the far-right Freedom Party is set to become the kingmaker. But if things go as expected, the new Prime Minister will be a 31-year-old, Sebastian Kurz. He can be seen as either an illiberal version of Emmanuel Macron or a Western version of Viktor Orban. Take your pick. We'll certainly be hearing more from him in coming months. In this week's episode of EU Confidential, we start by talking to Paul Taylor, who writes Politico's Europe at Large column. And to chime in with the EU's week of regions, we have back-to-back feature interviews with the president of the EU's Committee of the Regions, Karl-Heinz Lamberts, and the mayor of Athens, George Kaminas. In EU WTF, we'll cover everything from Romania's tax-avoiding chickens to men in shark costumes. And now it's time to talk Brexit with Paul Taylor. So, Paul, welcome to the EU Confidential podcast. You are certainly the largest personality, even if uh, Europe at large columnist is maybe not the nicest title to have. Thanks for being here. I'm sure they meant my girth when they gave me that title. I couldn't possibly comment. Uh, Now, I wanted to talk to you about Theresa May. I think everyone here in Brussels is getting worked up about the nitty gritty details of did we negotiate today? What has Michel Barnier got annoyed about? But... Can Theresa May survive all of this tumult around Brexit? I think that's the big question that's being asked in London. Uh, Is she a a walking dead or is she actually able still uh, to deliver and to make the, the compromises that will be necessary if there's going to be an agreement on Brexit? Before the party conference, when she went and made her speech in Florence, people thought, okay, she's made a first down payment on the sorts of concessions that need to be made. She's called for, she's requested effectively uh, a two-year-ish transition. Um, She's made clear that Britain will make some payment uh, and that nobody will be out of pocket in the current budget framework. So the idea was she would go to Manchester, she would have a strong conference, she would come out strengthened, and then the other shoe would fall, as it were, and she'd be in a position to make the next 
set of concessions or compromises than necessary. It didn't go that way. Um, not only did you know some of the scenery fall on her, but uh, she clearly came out weakened, uh, weakened by Boris Johnson's subversion, uh, weakened by all the whispering against her, uh, weakened by uh, her loss of voice. Um, and yet, I think she's there for the for the for the duration. Now, I can't tell you with that with much certainty. But uh, first of all, the plot to try and oust her uh, was outed and has failed. Uh, and everybody's been forced into back into line. But that was before she admitted she wasn't sure if she'd even vote for Brexit, which I found you know, pretty extraordinary. Well, uh, she has to please both sides, and uh, I think her, by refusing to answer a hypothetical question, she may have annoyed both sides. But uh, at least uh, the the Remainers can feel that she uh, still isn't convinced that, that, that there's going to be a better deal, but she's trying to do her best. Uh, and as for the, the, the Leavers, well, uh, they, uh, I guess, would say she's recognised that people have voted and there isn't going to be a second referendum. Um, so... Uh, I think she was on a hiding to nothing with that question, to be honest. The, 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 you, you can see that she has made one or two micro concessions since the party conference that suggest that she still does have some room, some wiggle room, uh, for manoeuvring the negotiations. I notice that she's now accepted that the jurisdiction of the ECJ will apply during the transition period. So what she sees as two years, but what many people think will end up being a lot longer than two what, years. What she sees as a concession, but what the EU views as a mere legal fact. Absolutely. Absolutely. But again, much of this is about the British negotiating with themselves rather than negotiating with Brussels. I think what people in Brussels are waiting for largely is, is more con concessions on money. But once it became clear that there wasn't going to be uh, an agreement in uh, next week's summit that Britain had made sufficient progress to move on to the next phase of the talks and the, the discussion of the longer-term trade relationship, then th that created a bit of a vacuum because if that finding is only going to be made in December, then what's the point of making concessions in the middle of October, which people would just pocket and come back for more? So there will have to be more concessions on the money side, but the question is the timing of them. She needs to time them in such a way that it creates the critical mass uh, and tips things over into the next phase of negotiations. So we're probably going to be in a holding pattern for the next few weeks, and she'll ramp it up a bit in November, maybe. Well, there are reports that she's going to reshuffle her cabinet, and those reports also suggest she may demote Boris Johnson. So that would be a signal, although obviously not, not a signal that has any significance at the negotiating table. But it means that it won't be a political vacuum, but she will be trying to create the room and re-establish the authority that she's lost in order to be able to handle that next really uh, critical phase of the negotiations. Well, I hear there's an ambassador post free in Yemen or Myanmar for Boris Johnson, so maybe he might be taking a rather long trip. <laughs> well, I think it's, uh, you know, his, his contribution to the Rohingya peace process doesn't necessarily re recommend him for the latter one. It can't be measured, let's say. <laughs> <laughs> I think she'll want to keep him closer than that. But 
you know, it's difficult to tell with Boris Johnson because his allies are in the grassroots of the party and in the Tory or a section of the Tory press which adores him. But he has lots of enemies in the cabinet and uh, in the parliamentary party uh, and people who think that he's making uh, things worse. So I don't think, I mean, one of the reasons why my personal guess would be that Theresa May will stay in office until there is a Brexit agreement, if there is to be one, uh, and possibly until it's ratified until the day of Brexit itself, is that A, nobody else wants to take responsibility for making all those nasty compromises. They'd rather let her get, burn all her political capital doing that and then come in and say, well, I would, of course, never made all those concessions, but now they've been made, you know, we must just got to get on with it. Um, but the A little bit is, like May and Brexit itself, <laughs> <laughs> given that she didn't vote for it. <laughs> the other thing is that they, they really can't agree among themselves about who it should be, their personal ambitions, or about what the direction of the country should be. Well, that's a pretty fundamental question we won't be able to answer here, Britain. Figure out the fundamental direction of your country and, uh, and we'll come back and talk to you later. Paul Taylor, thanks for joining us on Thank EU you. Confidential. Before we dive into our next interview, I want to set the scene a little. The EU has more than 40 agencies and a series of, let's call them minor institutions that sit around the core of the European Commission, the European Council of Ministers and the European Parliament. And the Committee of the Regions is one of those institutions and it's been a big week for them this week. Their president, who we'll talk to in a minute, he delivered his first ever State of the Union address and he's building an alliance to make sure that all of those regional voices aren't hurt when the EU has to cut its budget after Brexit. President Lamberts, welcome to EU Confidential. Hello. So the Committee of the Regions is an important EU institution, but one that a lot of people don't um, always know a lot about. Um, why don't you start by telling us something that our listeners wouldn't know about, how you operate, how you make sure your voice is heard to President Tusk, President Juncker and other EU figures. We are certainly not the most important institution of the European Union, but we are a very interesting one. Why? We are the voice of the cities and regions in Europe. And cities and regions, and certainly the citizens living there, are very, very important for the European Union. They are the European Union. Europe is not Brussels, Strasbourg, Luxembourg. Europe is, first of all, the place where people live. And if they are convinced there, that working together in Europe on a common way has a real intellectual, economical and emotional added value for her own life, then Europe will survive. Ah, so maybe a way to think about it then is the Committee of the Regions is part of filling in that democratic deficit that people always speak about when they want to make a complaint about Europe or Brussels being remote. We are not a decision maker. Council, Parliament, Commission have to take decisions. We are the champions of opinions. But Commission must ask our opinion if they want to decide uh, something on a legal way. They are not obliged to, to do what we say, but we can influence 
politician decision makers here in uh, Europe and I think it is very important. It is even more important now than in the past. It was always important, but the crisis we are living now, the Euro criticism we are living, is founded on this feeling of people that they are outside the decision area of European uh, uh, policy. Well, and there's a real live issue now with Catalonia where, I mean, I wonder if uh, people had listened to the voices that were really regionally based, the concerns in Catalonia, if there'd been a way to hear some of those voices before we saw uh, Sunday's vote and the violent clashes that, that took place there. Um, what, what, what do you th think the role could be for your institution or the, the EU now, both with Catalonia and making sure that other regional issues like that don't blow up to the same extent? The regional dimension is very important in Europe. And Europe is more than an international organization. In the European multi-level governance system, each level has a place. And if something doesn't work on one level, it will uh, be uh, a problem for all of us on the end of the process. So we are very concerned by what is happening in, um, in Catalonia and in Spain, even if it is uh, their uh, responsibility to find uh, an issue. But perhaps uh, the experience of Europe, I will say uh, the acquis communautaire uh, on the level of decentralization, of cooperation between states and regions, can be an element that uh, bring us nearer to a solution. I am coming from Belgium, so I, I know very well what it means to have conflicts between regions in a state. And you were you were president of the German-speaking community here. Right. So it was a long part of was the most <laughs> important part of uh, my professional life. Uh, I was uh, for f f 24 years in the government of my regions, and and I participated so on, on so much discussions uh, uh, around the future of the Belgian state. My experience. Uh, is followed. Even if the positions are very different, both parts must be convinced that they have to find a, a compromise. A compromise where no one will be the only winner. And it must be a democratic way respecting uh, laws and constitutions, but it is not only uh, a legal aspect. Mm -hmm. The more important aspect is a political will to find a balanced compromise. Would an outside mediator help? A mediator could be very, very important, but mediation is only possible if both sides want to go to a mediation. And on the moment, it is not the case. Exactly. You can't force it on them. Maybe a bit more about um, your work now with the EU budget and the future of Europe. They're two big issues for you. A, a lot of people probably don't realize that the biggest part of the EU's trillion euro budget over each seven year period, it's actually regional support, regional subsidies. Um, what, what are you working on there as the EU plans out its next budget? The future of Europe is not only a question of money, but without money we will not have a very future of Europe. And it is really the, the DNA uh, of Europe. Without cohesion policy we don't have an union like we want. 
cohesion is fundamental. Even if it is difficult uh, to um, to find some money. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's something like Juncker's suggestions in his State of the Union. He was really trying to, I think, give an olive branch to some of the eastern regions, you know, on things like food quality and the, and the different standards that are sometimes applied there, where it sounded like he was trying to find non-monetary ways to say, we need to come closer together. Is that a sort of way around some of these budget difficulties that come up as Brexit occurs and the budget potentially shrinks? We must find to common interest all over Europe and the differences between the north and the south and the eastern and the western and the middle part of Europe are still big. Differences are big between states but even and very even uh, inside the states and cohesion policy is somewhat that help everyone to make progress. Working in uh, cohesion policy is not only an attitude give me money. It is a a conviction Mm. to work together on the solution of your own problems. Scale is a really important point as well, isn't it? I kind of feel that we're at the point in politics now where national governments are, you know, they're not deliberately letting people down, but people feel more and more frustrated at what a nation can or can't do for it. But cities and regions, they're big enough to make a difference, but small enough to really innovate and and manage a change um, in a substantial way. Do you get that feeling with the people that you work yeah. with? In all your life, you are always at the same time too small and too big. <laughs> but uh, what is very important is that you have places where people are living. For a long time, it's the place they uh, are identified with and that is very important. I am the champion of a small, one of the smallest, even the smallest region with legislative power in European uh, federal states. And uh, we had never a problem to cooperate with one of the biggest, North Rhine-Westphalia. We are neighbors uh, and I know that the the importance of the minister-president of Rhine-Westphalia is a little bit different from the importance of the minister-president of the German-speaking region, either, even if he is uh, physically bigger than the other. <laughs> and uh, Well, now, now you've got the title. Now you can go back and say, all right, I'm European now. I'm, I'm over you. <laughs> well, President Lamberts, thank you for joining us. It was a pleasure having you on EU Confidential. Thank you very much. And now it's time to go local for a few minutes. Mayors have been getting an increasingly high profile across the world as agents of change. And we speak to one of those brightest voices now, George Kaminas from Athens. Well, joining me now on the podcast is Mayor Kaminas of Athens. Thank you for joining us. No, you're welcome. I'm very happy being here. Great. Um, Now, you were shortlisted for World Mayor of the Year, which is a great achievement in itself. But maybe we can start by you telling me a little bit about uh, what achievement you're most proud of um, since you've been the mayor of Athens, because it hasn't been an easy time for Athens in the last few years. No, I have been, I'm mayor since uh, 2011. I'm on my second term. I was re-elected in 2014. So I think that one of our successes is that we have succeeded doing 
what the Greek state didn't do. That means economies. We have a surplus. And that means that we can spend money to take care of the poor people in Athens. And at the same time, bring European structural funds to the city so that we can make, let's say, the changes for the next decade for Athens 2030, let's say. And does that mean you collect your own local taxes? Because one of the big problems in Greece has always been, how do you tax the wealth in Greece? So how do you get around that? Yes, our power of taxation is very, very limited. We depend largely on the central state. So one of the things that must be done in Greece is that we change that, that we give more powers to the cities, more powers to the municipalities, that we start having a genuine decentralization so that we can make local authorities more responsible. You know, if I, if, if it's the mayor that you know, puts the taxes on the people, he must be responsible and he must apologize how he's spending the money. Now, that's not the case. So we have to move forward to that. It's one of the structural uh, reforms that we need, and yet uh, we don't have them in, in Greece. What's your relationship like with Alexis Tsipras, the Greek prime minister? Is he cooperative when it comes to you um, managing Athens in the way that you'd like to manage it? Well, unfortunately, that's not the case. Our personal relations, of course, they're very good. Uh, He's a nice guy. But for the rest, no, we are very much disappointed. First of all, the Greek people is disappointed because Mr. Tsipras has promised a lot and has delivered very few things. And the second thing is concerning local administration. I see no, no, not any project of real reform. The only thing that they are proposing to do is change the electoral system to make it more proportional so that his party gains more seats in the municipal councils. But that is not the reform that we need. What we need is, as I said, the power of taxing, of taxation. And the second thing is more, more competences. And where the EU fits into that, is it about um, better access to the EU's um, regional and cohesion subsidies? Uh, because it, this week it's the EU week of regions, so there's a lot of events taking place in Brussels, and the EU did change the system a few years back to, to make it easier for Greek projects and um, other layers of the Greek government system to, to access its funds. Um, what would you like the EU to do to help you do your job better as a man? Well, the time has come, I think, that uh, the EU takes seriously, uh, starts considering seriously the case of the cities, because the future belongs to the cities. There are signs everywhere that cities are much more innovative. Entrepreneurship is going very well in the cities. In the cities, we find the big challenges of our time, for the good or for the bad. And now with the urban agenda that was introduced by the Dutch presidency, now finally we have a forum where we can speak with both the European Union and the national governments and the cities. We, we take part in a workshop on the, on the framework of the urban agenda together with other big European cities like Amsterdam and Berlin talking about the refugee issue. And the time has come so that we have direct access to European funds and that does not depend on the Greek government. Now, 
that leads me to two questions. The first one is, um, is it realistic to make that happen in the next seven-year EU budget? And then question two is around the, the support and the handling and the processing of refugees, because Greece has really been at, um, in a very difficult position there, where it's uh, been receiving more refugees um, from Turkey, um, uh, at least up until 2016, than any other country, but it's had less resources than anyone else to deal with it. But it also does seem like a lot of that has been uh, mismanaged. Like I've heard a lot of complaints that um, the EU funds haven't been managed correctly and I've seen a lot of distressing situations. It really is a very complicated issue because you see at the same time, we speak about the issue of funding, we, we, we have the issue of competences, government or local authorities, we have the mentalities of people, people are afraid, they feel insecure, and at the same time, they ask, why protect the refugees while we are, we are in despair, our own, we, we ourselves? So you have to address those issues at the same time and simultaneously. Well, concerning the funding, I think that cities have performed much, much better than governments. First, on the question of principles. It is the cities who have applied the European principles on asylum. <clears throat> Well, you see that countries disagree and they practice this not in my backyard and limbo, as they call it. Cities have behaved in another way. Important cities like uh, Berlin, like Leipzig, like Barcelona, like Athens. We in Athens, we, what we said, what we did was that we tried to, to speak in a, in a realistic manner, to address the issue on very real terms and say, listen, we have a problem here. We have to manage it. So what do you prefer? You prefer refugees sleeping on the parks and uh, on the public squares, or do you want us to offer them a space, a camp, where to stay, and also apartments. Now we are managing the municipality of Athens, 300 apartments in Athens in a very successful way. Now, I wonder, or I suspect, that maybe uh, the ability of cities or the, the role of cities so far may be due to two things. Um, the first element would seem to be that you're just in charge of local services. So that is logical in that sense, that um, you see and understand what refugees need more than a remote bureaucracy does. But then the second factor is cities tend to be uh, left-leaning. You say that we have direct knowledge and access to the problems of people, and at the same time we have, let's say, most mayors are left-wings or very liberal, they would say, the United States. Well, yes, because we have to address real problems. You know, uh, a mayor, all the day, what he does is explaining things, trying to mediate, trying to solve problems. He cannot avoid problems. You know, not like a secretary of state or a minister in our case, prepare a draft legislation and feel very, very successful. No, you have to implement this legislation you have to explain people, solve problems, and I said mediate. And at the same time, help people. Most of, actually in Greece, this uh, social care of the poor, it, 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 it is mainly a responsibility of the municipalities, not a formal responsibility. It's what we have done ourselves. We took the initiative and we started helping poor people. So that, I think, can explain many, many things. 
Now, if I could ask you a little bit about uh, your own political ambitions or your ambitions for the centre-left in, in Greece. We saw the collapse of the main centre-left party, PASOK, um, and now there are plans to develop a new party, and they seem to be getting underway uh, quite rapidly. Well, there is a big vacuum in our political system in the centre between Syriza, who is extreme left in his origins and even now in the way that they think. In their DNA, they, they are still leftists in Syriza, even though they, they try not to be, but they cannot succeed in that. And on the other hand, we have the right-wing party, and now actually that we have the very controversial legislation on the issue of uh, uh, sex identity, huh? we have now a big issue in the parliament, and we see what the right-wing party really is. They try to show themselves as liberals. In reality, most of them are very, very, very conservative. The most important division, the Summa Divisio, let's say, it is. it still is between left and right, but at the same time, it's between progress and conservatism. I think we can distinguish in the interior of many, many uh, political parties in Europe. And is, I mean, would your goal be to attract those voters who uh, they don't support the right, so they went to Syriza because they knew that PASOK was dead, they didn't want to support um, a conservative alternative and they were just angry at the system? My candidacy can attract them. We can attract them back. Because at the same time, I have nothing to do with the past. I was not a member of PASOK, even though I have voted PASOK many times. So I have, let's say, a past that has nothing to do with interior conflicts and things like that. So I think I can bring those people back and at the same time bring unity to a very fragmented uh, political space. I think that I can do that. Mm-hmm. And are we headed for elections, in your opinion, next year? I know that they don't have to take place next year, but there's constant rumours coming out of Athens that the government sort of won't survive or will hit a brick wall, yet there is some progress in terms of the bailout, so they do have a story to tell that's, that's, you know, it's, it's not a failure, but, you know, it's a contested space. That's not a story, that's a fairy tale. Tell me why. <laughs> because... You know, uh, what they have to do is bring investments in the country so that we can have growth and start seeing that uh, jobless people find jobs. We have the biggest rate of unemployment in Europe. And they say that people, that it has started falling, but in reality, these are precarious jobs that uh, it's only for surviving. So there is no growth in the country and they cannot bring this growth. So that's why I'm telling about a fairy tale. I think that we are going to have elections in 2018, even though normally they should take place in 2019, if our experiment, what we are trying to do, our project, not experiment, our project in center-left succeeds, then I think they will run to have elections because they will be panicked. Now, Emmanuel Macron appears to be ready to start some kind of new movement of parties across Europe. 
and uh, that wouldn't necessarily be liberal, but it probably isn't going to join the socialist grouping either. Um, your new party, do you think it's more likely um, when it's up and running for the 2019 European elections to align with something like that left liberal group of Macron? Or would you be more interested to join the existing socialists and Democrats group? I think it's a little bit premature, early to, to talk about that. But we have to listen to Macron very, very carefully and observe what he is doing. We shouldn't have big ideological debates. We have to do the obvious things. We have to be very practical. We know what should be done in the country. It's not to discover the wheel, you to invent the wheel again. It's, you know, we need, for example, decentralization. We need a more effective uh, public administration. We need to, br to bring growth. So these are things where we can have a consensus all over the country, I think, among democratic powers. So. For the time being, we have to be very, very realistic. One final question. There are so many talented and wealthy and entrepreneurial Greeks around the world. You have an amazing diaspora. I'm from Australia, where I think it's almost the second or third biggest Greek city in the world in Melbourne. There are so many Greeks there. Um, what would it take, do you think, for some of those people, um, maybe the ones who've only been away a few years rather than a few generations, to, to actually come back and, and live in Greece so that they chose Athens or Thessaloniki over London, for example? The last eight years, we have almost half a million young Greeks living the country, in a very small country, you know. So we have to bring them back. To bring them back, we have to change everything. And that's difficult, but some symbolic gestures must be, must be done. First of all, we should involve them in the voting process. The second thing is that we need to open our economy. We need to open our markets, but have them regulated at the same time. But the most important thing is to leave no one behind. Well, Mayor Kaminas, thank you for opening up to us here on EU Confidential. It was a pleasure having you. Thank you so much. And now a word from our sponsor. This podcast is sponsored by AB InBev. With well over 500 brands globally, such as Budweiser, Corona, and Stella Artois, AB InBev is the world's number one brewer. AB InBev's heritage dates back more than 600 years, spanning continents and generations, from European roots at the Denhorn Brewery in Leuven, Belgium, to the pioneering spirit of the Anheuser & Company Brewery in St. Louis, to the Castle Brewery in South Africa. In over 50 countries, AB InBev's approximately 200,000 colleagues work hard to build great brands using the best natural ingredients and to provide consumers with a wide choice of innovative products, including no and low alcohol beers. Every day, AB InBev strives to bring people together for a better world. So now it's time for our EU WTF Moments of the Week. That's right, plural people. We do more than one EU WTF most weeks. So welcome back, Lena Abarus. Hi, Ryan. And a special welcome to Harry Cooper, who joins us in place of Alva Finn today. Greetings, Ryan. So we've got a fun one to kick off with. 
And that is the case of the former economy and finance minister of Romania, Mr. Varajan Voganian. And he has come up with an explanation of the country's low budget revenues, and they include subsistence farming. He claims that each egg a peasant eats from his own backyard robs the state budget of money and that the untaxed self-consumption of eggs leads to billions of lost money from the Romanian budget. Now, I don't know about you, but I feel like most high school economics classes probably can get a bit more sophisticated than that. But Harry, I hear that you have a different take on it. I'm really struggling not to burst out laughing as you were describing it. It really is a remarkable example of a politician trying to explain to you his voters how a, a, a system works. But um, I, I actually think it's, I actually think it's a quite um, a clever way of doing it. The point he's, what well, the point he's trying to make, I think, um, is that if you're eating. Um, things that you've grown yourself then you're not buying it from a shop which means you're not paying sales tax and that then means that the government is collecting less tax revenue overall I think perhaps he could have found a better example than peasant farming uh, chickens farmed by peasants though or like when you clean your own house you're basically a traitor because you haven't hired a taxable cleaning lady maybe Yeah, but it's interesting he just um, uh, talked about it um, still many people in more developed countries and in industrial countries in Europe like uh, Denmark because he talked about Denmark uh, in Germany still people grow their tomato their their lettuce their uh, mint and, and they're still a very important industrial uh, European power um, uh, funny enough that um, uh, the former uh, minister didn't talk at all about the corruption rating, didn't talk about the uh, public spending. So poor darlings, the, the, the peasants are now uh, the real uh, big problem for the Romanian economy. But God forbid that they are uh, 57%, uh, 57, sorry, rating uh, on the international corruption index and their public spending jumped uh, a lot uh, the second half of 2017. It gets even better. We've just scrolled down the original article that alerted us to this problem, <laughs> and there's a better quote. He says, the former minister, it's the same with tomatoes grown in the garden, jam f- from plums in the orchard, homemade soap made from fat, or sweaters made from the wool of a farmer's sheep, because all of this produced gross domestic product but no taxes. And he says that the people in Denmark, France, and other countries... Um, they don't have hens in their courtyards or make ketchup from their own tomatoes, and that's why their economy works better. That's not true. Still in villages and uh, in, in, in Denmark and in other uh, Scandinavian countries, they still have, they're growing their own tomatoes and they have their hens. I'm really, really struggling to, to, to digest this article. I'm, str- I'm really struggling to have a, like, to make a, a coherent, sensible point about this, because it's really quite bizarre that we're discussing homemade ketchup and peasant farms, farming chicken. It's a week of amusing EU WTF moments. Next up, uh, I wanted to discuss the burka ban in Austria and the fact that that's having some unintended consequences or perhaps predictable consequences where this week uh, several bikers have been fined for covering their face protecting against the cold, something that's surely only going to get worse as winter comes on, and a man dressed as a shark, uh, which is the logo of his company. He was promoting his company in a shark costume. He was also fined by police for fully covering his face in public. How sad. Like, really sad that... That he has to dress up as a shark? shark. (laughs) (laughs) No, how 
how creative I mean but it really it, it's becoming so sad that we're we're very scared we're very alerted uh, I mean security is it seems all the time on our minds uh, you would think ten you would think of the bad thing before thinking that it is um, a simple man who's promoting his own company and his own products it's, it's really He's probably the safest shark out there let's be honest <laughs> I mean I am um, I what I found most amusing about this story was the fact that I think it was the police reassured citizens of whichever town he was in that Halloween costumes would not be affected by the ban well, that's just ridiculous. I mean, like, either being fully covered <laughs> is a problem or it isn't, but you can't just assume that, okay, so if I did want to blow up a town in Austria, now I know it's okay to do it in a Halloween costume. I mean, that's it, just... It's a... inspired, yeah, I, I agree with you. Mm-hmm. They, they inspired lots of things. So. Well, there you go, Austria. Go back to the drawing board. That's our advice here on EU Confidential. <laughs> and now it's time for an EU thumbs up. I think this one could be a bit of a double-edged thumbs up, but I am nominating... Wolfgang Schäuble leaving the Eurogroup as the German finance minister. He's going on to be the uh, speaker, the president of the Bundestag in Germany. And he, um, you know, he inspires a lot of emotions in both directions. And he got some presents as he was leaving this week, didn't he? He did. He was given a, a, a 100 euro uh, note with his face on it. Um, illegal in some countries to deface currency indeed. like that. And he also was given a, a European Union flag um, with each of the uh, 18 other Eurogroup finance ministers leaving a note. The, 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 the best one I thought was the note left by the Greek finance minister, of course, who has been the subject of many challenging discussions, shall we say, inspired by Mr. Schäuble, which said something along the lines of, we'll never be the same without you. <laughs> Well, certainly it will never be the same without him. Better me. than saying IOU on the note, isn't it? Indeed, indeed. <laughs> but I heard there was a bottle of wine as well. Well, there we go. I mean, that's probably under the 25 euro limit. He doesn't need to <laughs> declare that one. Well, um, I don't know if it was goodbye or good riddance, but Wolfgang Schäuble, uh, it was certainly a memorable time that you spent on the Eurogroup. That's all we've got time for in this episode of EU Confidential. We'll be back again next week, and remember, if you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you found it, you'll never have to search or wait for EU Confidential again. Podcasting is, of course, a team effort, so I want to give a big thanks to Rosie Belson and Wei Dong Lin for making this episode possible. 